You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So today marks the third week in our teaching series in the Gospel According to Mark. Uh, and if, if you were here all those weeks ago in the first week, uh, you may recall that we did the whole thing. Like we covered the whole book of Mark, that's chapters 1 through 16, and specifically, uh, if you weren't here, we highlighted three things. We highlighted these three movements in the gospel according to Mark. So chapters 1 through 8, the end of chapter 8 to chapter 10, and, and chapters 11 through 16, and each of these movements have this corresponding and leading question. And just to, uh, if you don't remember those questions, here they are. Uh, the, the first in chapters one through eight that Mark's asking, is asking, who is Jesus? And by the end of chapter eight, he's then beginning to ask this question, what does it mean for this Jesus to be the Christ? And the final movement, that's chapters 11 through 16, Mark now turns his attention to how this Jesus will become king. And for sure, over the next like 58-ish weeks, we will cover all of these questions. Uh, they're actually gonna... But, but they're going to do more. They're, they're going to actually frame out this whole year. And so if you'd like, you could think of these questions each as like a subheading over a mini-series within the gospel according to Mark. And so really, if, if you'd like, this is week one of a new series just called Who? Where we're going to be asking with Mark, who is Jesus? And so to help us get into this question, we pick up with Mark, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip on over or you can turn them on, however you get there, that we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and we pick up with this question, who is Jesus, in verse 2. And this is what we read. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And I want, I want us to, as we're thinking about this question, who is Jesus? I want us to notice this line right here in verse two. As it is written. Just those four little words. You see, when Mark sets out to like, account for Jesus's life, for Jesus's ministry, and then in turn, bear witness to this Jesus as the one in whom all of humanity is to hope, this Jesus who is the good news, Notice what Mark's move is here. Mark's move is to look back in order to look forward. And this, this season, this is kind of what we're doing as we're considering who Jesus is. It's important for us to keep in mind that for Mark, Jesus's story, it isn't random. It isn't haphazard, it's not accidental, but it's rooted in the story of Israel. It, it actually comes out of that and it is the fulfillment of Israel's story. And so to make sure that we don't miss the depths that are this person of Jesus and the depths of his story, Mark begins to activate our imaginations. And he does so with four simple words, as it is written. And these words, they can do it at least a couple of things. And first, they, they begin to um, draw us into the rich history of Jesus. Like who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And what is the story of his past? And they do so by us hearing from the prophet Isaiah. But this second thing that, that they do, and it's a little more subtle, is, is these four words, as it is written, they begin to help us ask, well, is there more here than meets the eye? 
Like, could this moment that we're standing in as people in the future look back at it, could they go, as it is written in gateway history? Like, like what, it's, it's just saying, what's going on? There's something happening here. And so I just, I wanted us to pause in this as it is written, especially in this first thing, because this quote that Mark ascribes to the prophet Isaiah is really this mashup of three prophets. It's, it's from the prophet Moses and from Isaiah and Malachi. And at first blush, when, when you hear, hold, hold on, I thought this was just Isaiah, but you're telling me it's, it's, it's three prophets. Isn't that like sloppy scholarship on Mark's behalf? May, or we might just call it, no, this is, it's fake news. This is what's going on here. Well, um, that's, that's not the case at all. Because remember, for Mark, Jesus is not accidental. Jesus' story is not haphazard. And, and so as Mark is accounting for Jesus' life and helping us to consider who Jesus is, he is super intentional. And so to, to see this, let, let's just follow Mark into the rich history of Jesus, Yeah. Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's just follow him down this path of as it is written. And so uh, to start where Mark starts in this, uh, turn with me to like the beginning of your Bible. Go with me to Exodus chapter 23. And so this is uh, like you, you open up your Bibles and this is the second book in. So go with me, Exodus chapter 23, starting in verse 20. And this is what we read. Behold, I send an angel, or or that word can be translated messenger. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversary. See, what we need to know right here is that this quote, it comes right out of Israel's Exodus story. So the book that we're in, Mark, is looking back to Exodus, which is one of the foundation stories for the people of Israel. And the book, Exodus, is actually named after the thing that's happening there. And this is the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery. It's the passing through the the chaotic, swirly waters of the Red Sea, God leading the people through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. This is the Exodus story. And this story here, it is essential. This story is the central story for the Hebrew people. So much so that that year after year, what the Israelites are going to do is they're going to rehearse this story. And they're going to do it in this little drama that they call the Passover feast. So it's like these small scale productions where they eat these foods and they sing these songs and they drink this wine to remind them of this whole account of the Exodus. They take it into themselves. And so each year what would happen is this like emerging generation, they would receive the Passover story. So they would, um, they would taste slavery's bitterness as they ate the bitter herbs. But then they would also taste this, like the movement from slavery to freedom in that same meal of, of life with God. And at the same time as this new generation is, is taking the story into themselves, an older generation, they're remembering God's faithfulness. They're remembering that God is the God who brought them out of slavery into the promised land. So this whole experience, this Exodus story, it, this is even woven into the fabric of Jesus's life. Because remember, uh, Jesus is a brown man from the Middle East. So he's Jewish. And, and we actually read 
in uh, the, the gospel according to Mark, that year after year, or excuse me, in the gospel according to, to Luke, year after year, Jesus's parents would come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. So th- they would take this story into themselves. And this is quote one. This is, this is where Mark is drawing from as, he, as he's looking back as it is written. But it goes deeper. He doesn't stop with Moses. He, he goes to then the namesake of the quote, to Isaiah. So turn with me. Uh, if you're still in Exodus, go like an inch over and go uh, to Isaiah. And this is some uh, like 900-ish years later, uh, God's freedom that he's brought the people into in the land of, like in the promised land in Israel that has now been neglected. And, and that freedom has been perverted as though they're like free to just do whatever they want. And now Israel's in shambles. And she looks like more like Pharaoh than God's faithful one. So she's filled with idolatry and, and, and promiscuity. The poor are oppressed and neglected. And so Isaiah then shows up on the scene to confront this neglect. He shows up on the scene to, to call out the corruption in the people of Israel. And so as we, as, if you open up the book of Isaiah, it moves in these two parts. And in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is calling out the corruption. So it's written to, to, uh, to Israel before the exile. And it's warning her to repent from this idolatry and the injustice that she finds herself in so that they don't find themselves back where it all began in Egypt. But sadly, Israel neglects this. And then what we get in the second block of writing in chapters 40 to the end of Isaiah is that it's either written from the perspective of later on, uh, like outside, like beyond the exile, or it's actually written from later on. But either way, this quote in Isaiah 40, it's the hinge upon which those two blocks move. And this is, this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse one. This is quote two in Mark's little prophetic mashup. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And if you notice, uh, the, the movement is no longer condemnation. It's, it's no longer that God is warning her that, that this exile is coming. No, now he's bringing comfort to her. And then this is what we get in verse three. See if you, if you recognize it. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So right here, this, this is a prophecy about the future. This is, this is not only about Israel coming back into the promised land. This is about God coming back into the promised land. And if you were to like really want to nerd out at this moment and, and dip your toes into a one and two chronicles and, and you want to dip your toes into the prophet Ezekiel, what you would see is that Israel's negligence of the law, that their outright disregard for the ways of God were the, thing, were the very things that thrust God out of their own presence. And so you go there and you'd see that then that this is an odd thing to be happening here, that God would be coming back to his people. But it's important that we see this here. 
Exile for the people of Israel was not like a timeout for them. It, it wasn't like, shame, shame. Now go spend some time alone and think about what you've done. It's not it at all. Rather, this is God honoring her choice. This is God honoring Israel's choice to pursue other lovers. And that, so when Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is God not counting her sins against her anymore. This is God coming, and, and really the image that captures this so well, and this is picked up time and time again by the prophets in the Old Testament, is this image of adultery. It's that Israel has been faithless, but that God is the faithful one, and that his love cannot be stopped in the face of her faithlessness. And so God comes, he moves towards her, that the God of restoration is on the move. And here in Isaiah 40, we actually see this hope is on the horizon for the people of God. And more specifically, we see that exile, exile will have an answer and that it's coming back into God's presence. And I don't know if you noticed this as we, as we read through this little quote here, um, but Isaiah's language, wilderness, way, glory, desert, all of this, it's just dripping with the Exodus account. It's because all of this language, it's rooted in the seedbed of the Exodus story. So it's not isolated at all. And yet, um, Isaiah is saying that when God comes back, the revealing of his glory, it's, it's gonna be like a new Exodus. It's gonna be like a, a new deliverance from slavery, yes, but more, it's gonna be a deliverance from sin and death itself. And yet Mark Mark's not satisfied stopping there. He wants, he knows then because Isaiah like isn't the last prophet. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. And so what Mark does is he bookends this and he says that all of the hope of Israel is caught up in what's to come in Jesus. And so what he does is he takes us then to the last prophet before the New Testament. And so we go to Malachi. So turn there with me. It's right before the gospel according to Matthew. This is Malachi chapter three. This is quote three in Mark's little prophetic mashup. There we go. This is Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is, this is like almost verbatim a quote from Isaiah 40. And then he goes on because there's, there's more to be had here. So verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then, and this is God speaking here, so pay attention. Then I will draw near, but for what? Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, or we could say the refugee. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So I don't know if you've picked up on it, but Mark wants to get our attention that God is coming back. But he's coming back in this way that's a little bit unexpected and possibly uncomfortable, even for us here all these years later in Des Moines, Iowa, of all places. God is coming, and he's coming for the restoration of all things, and yet the coming for restoration, it is this coming with judgment. It's the, it's the end of injustice, and this is good news. I, how many people here want to see justice or, or injustice continue? Good. Nobody. The ending of injustice is good news. This is what God's presence is bringing, provided you're not neglecting the vulnerable, oppressing the poor, the refugee. Just as an aside, um, this is really poignant for us as a community. We, we actually are, are, in some sense, a haven for refugees, and yet we're far from it. Just down the road, there are many people who are calling Des Moines home, and yet they're far from their true home. So what, would it, what could it look like for us, not with our hands and our feet yet, just to begin to be able to pray comfort, comfort for those who are displaced in our communities? What, what might that look like? Could you imagine if your mornings started by praying that those who feel displaced physically, who are longing for their homeland, could actually begin to feel at peace in their own skin, in their own neighborhood? Like, just imagine Gateway. Like, imagine what that would do. Like, if we were actually praying for God's comfort to come to the people of Des Moines. Just, just food for thought. Maybe this is what we do as a church. But back to these sudden words of uncomfortability from God, because this is, hey, welcome to church, by the way. Here, God just says, I will flat out come to put you on trial. So if you're new, welcome. This is what we're doing. <laughs> so there's no way, like there's no two ways about this. This is heavy. But this is also why the messenger comes. It's not as though this, this message of injustice ending and, and judgment coming is like, okay, by the way, judgment's gonna come. Oh, oh, uh, but the messenger. No, the messenger comes because judgment is coming. And the messenger here is a tangible expression of God's grace because God desires all people to be restored, to be caught up in the renewal of his presence, to be saved from the judgment. This is quote three. And yet, in the wake of Malachi's words, silence some 400 years worth. And I, like, as, I, as I think about this, I think that this can actually be one of the most frustrating things about trying to follow Jesus. It's the silence. So like, just think about our community over the past two years. How much we've, like, we've prayed for healing, emotionally, physically, and in many cases, it's just silence. And we've, we've prayed, like, not with, like, we've prayed with faith. Not saying that it's like, oh, if you don't pray with faith, then your prayers won't be answered. But I'm saying, like, like we've, we've eagerly sought 
God to intervene into the brokenness that's here. And yet in many cases, silence. So what, like, what, do we, what do we do with this? Like we hope and we trust and we submit and yet silence. And over the past few weeks, I've just been thinking about this. And I think that we are, like, we really are desperate to have healing in these spaces, in our lives and corporately and in Des Moines itself. But man, if I'm being honest, like, I think, I think what I often have, like, am praying for is that God would take it away. Like, God, just would you come? And we should, like, please do not stop praying for God to break in and, like, bring healing to, like, us emotionally, like, spiritually, like, the whole thing. We, sh- we should not stop praying for that. And yet, what, what got me thinking was, um, what if the miracle is him being with us? What, what, if the, what if the miracle, what if God's presence is like, that's the gift? What if it's him not evacuating us from our circumstances, but him, him actually like parachuting down to be with us in the midst of it all? And I, I, don't, I, don't have an, I wish I had an answer to the what if of that. And I guess my point is that we all have a hunger for God to show up. Whether we're back in the days of of Malachi or Isaiah or Moses, like we all have a hunger for God to show up. That's not changed in us. And yet in many cases, what we, like silence is there. You know, it actually takes a lot of faith to sit with the silence. Do you know that, church? Like if, um, if you ask something of God, and it's not answered, you can very well just go, there's my proof. There's, I asked and it wasn't answered. It takes a great deal of faith to have a prayer go unanswered and to wrestle with God. And so I'm really, like I actually, I'm quite grateful this morning that you are a people who wrestle, that we are a people who wrestle with God. Even in the face of the silence. And what's encouraging is it actually helps us enter into this story of Jesus because, you know, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's, there's been handfuls of people, just gobs and gobs of Israelites who are now coming back into the promised land and yet God's presence isn't in the temple. It's, it's something like, like two thirds are still without, they're still outside the promised land. And so, so for much of Israel, it still feels like exile is the reality. That is the status quo. And so they're still longing for this one to come. They're still longing for God to show up, for God to move with power. Remember, for his glory to be revealed. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn back to our teaching text. This is Mark chapter one. And let's pick up in verse four. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And stop right there. This is Mark's way of saying, he's it. Like John's the guy. This is the one that you've been waiting for. John has appeared. So he quotes this prophetic mashup that captures all of the hope, all of the angst of God's coming. And he says, John appeared. It's it, this has begun. The new exodus is at hand. The one you've been waiting and longing for, the renewal is here. And John's job then is to get all of Israel ready. And so how does he do it? Well, it's right here in verse four. Read this again. 
He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this might like sound odd to us. Um, the, the baptism is maybe a little bit more familiar language, but re- repentance is just to, to turn around. But to, anytime we talk about sin in our culture, it like, uh, it just, it, 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 the feelings come out um, and we don't like the, those things to, to come out. And so it feels odd. But this word baptism, it simply just means to immerse. And, and yet this immersion this dunking under, it's, a, it's an identity statement. And we can really miss this today because here in the late modern West, it, independence and autonomy are the things that are celebrate, like celebrated, even glorified in our culture. And so it's even like, I'm gonna go mark out, I'm gonna be an, like, to be an entrepreneur, to start a new venture, that is celebrated. And yet in the midst of this, what, what happens is, is we start to miss the significance of an identity statement like baptism. Because in other parts of the world, it's flipped, where we has a greater value than me. In our culture, it's you do you. It's like, I don't think this is still relevant, but YOLO, like just do, like that's like live your best life. Like that, that is the mantra of our time. And yet that is heresy in many places in the world because we is greater than me. And so it's flipped because unity has the higher value. And what's interesting is, is many Muslims and, and Jews and other faith systems, they understand the significance of baptism far more than we Protestants do. See, for us, baptism is like this personal, almost private thing. It's this expression of my individual faith, my personal relationship with God. And so we'll come and we'll say, yes, I, I trust Jesus. So we might have done this thing where we've confessed our sins. We've said we've turned in repentance, but then it's like, five months, five years, 20, like decades, and we've not ever entered the waters of baptism. By, by the way, it's a command. So if you want to get baptized, um, like, I don't know, there's probably, text that number and just say, hello, I want to get baptized. We can make that happen. And then that's a step in obedience. So that's beautiful. See, but we miss this. And what we miss is that baptism is the transferring of solidarity. It's, it's the transferring of unity with one family to solidarity and unity with another family because baptism is an identity statement. In some extreme cases in, in Muslim and Orthodox Jewish homes, if someone is baptized into the name of Jesus, they hold a funeral for that person because to be with Jesus is to be dead to that family. That's how, that's how intense, that's how significant this identity statement is. And yet, in a culture that understands, in John's context, in a Jewish culture where they understand this, his baptism goes viral. Just look at verse five. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So if the people coming to receive John's baptism were presumably Jewish, and those who are coming from Judea and Jerusalem are, that, that means they're already making identity statements all the time. It's, it's likely that they're going to the synagogue. It's likely that they're observing the Sabbath, that they're eating kosher. And certainly like all the Jewish males would have the ultimate identity statement in circumcision. And if you don't know what circumcision is, just Google it afterwards. Um, or maybe don't. I don't 
that's on you. Um, needless to say, if you're coming out to John for this baptism, your whole life is an identity statement. If you're, if you're Jewish, there's no like cotton poly blend for you. There's none of that going on. It's just straight one fabric, no weaving of two things. That's how much your life is an identity statement. And yet the whole of the Judean countryside, all of Jerusalem are coming out, confessing their sins. You know what's happening here? This is a nationwide move of God. But what is it about this washing, like this immersion, this baptism? What is it about this that gets the attention of Jerusalem? Well, when you think about it, um, if, if you're Jewish, the only people that really needed to make an identity statement were Gentiles. And Gentiles are basically anybody who's not Jewish. But now, according to John, if anyone wants to come to God, they would need to mark out solidarity with God. And they would need to do so through baptism. They would need to say, I am united to the God who is coming. In other words, and this is, this is huge, John is saying that all of your observance, all of your Sabbath keeping, all of your external markers, they count for nothing in the face of God's coming judgment because everyone must come to God on the same terms repentance and faith. It's by faith. It's by, it's by faith. And in this, in this case, it's faith expressed through baptism. And if this didn't get your attention, like if this message didn't get your attention, um, then surely verse six would. Go there with me. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a, a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Um. If you saw John walking down the street, would that, or would that, like, that would get your attention, yes? Yeah, unless that's your style, then I guess it is the mantra of our times. You do you. But, but right here, Mark's not saying this, but he's quoting from two kings. He, he's drawing on the description of another prophet, the, the prophet Elijah. And this prophet, he is known for, for wearing, guess, guess what Elijah is known for wearing? Oh my gosh, yes. Camel's hair. I, any other guesses of what Elijah's known for wearing? A leather belt. Camel's hair and a leather belt. Not to mention uh, that this prophet, Elijah, uh, he was taken up by God into the heavens on like uh, chariots of fire, which is pretty epic. Uh, but, but get this, he was taken up right next to the Jordan River. Where was John baptizing? Were, we, are, were you guys listening? The Jordan River. This is, it's like, it's like John is saying, hello, Elijah. Like, wake up. And just like Elijah, John was nothing like the religious elite of the day. See, while those leaders like sat secure in wealth and comfort, wealth that they gained corruptly on the, like the backs of their own people at their own expense, John is out in the wilderness. John is in this place of hardship and testing. He's like eating bugs. And I love how Phil described it. He's like probably got like a bug, just a locust leg sticking out of his beard and like honey dripping. That was a great visual um, when Phil described it. But this is John. And he does, this is, this is intentional. Because remember in Mark, every word counts. 
And so when John shows up in the wilderness near the Jordan, looking like Elijah, talking like Elijah, it's abundantly clear that John is the one who is calling out in the wilderness. He is the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. And listen to the summary of what he's calling out. Verses seven and eight. After me comes he who is mightier than I. Could you imagine if your whole message, like your whole career was that guy. No, no, not, not me, that guy. It's all, no, it's all about that guy over there. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, I don't, um, that is a servant's task. So John is saying, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and get the goop out between the Lord's toes. Just imagine that. Verse eight, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, the difference here, the difference between what's happening here in these baptisms is the one is aligning ourselves with God and the renewal of God, and the other is being fully immersed, fully united with God and his purposes. The one is repentance and confession, and the other one is filling. And, and in John's day, this would be earth-shattering news. Because in the Old Testament, only a few people had the Spirit on them. And they had the Spirit on them for appointed times and appointed purposes. But a day is coming, says John, when God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. And John has been doing this. Uh, Mark has been doing this through John and John and Mark and this whole thing. Um, but they're looking back to the prophet Joel. That when God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, and remember, in Isaiah and in Malachi, the voice, it's their job, the, the messenger's job is to get the people ready for God's renewal, for Yahweh, for God himself to show up on the scene because a new exodus is at hand. And yet in Mark, the very next person we meet is Jesus. And this is, this is where we'll spend our time next week. But, but for now, Mark is saying that the God of the cosmos has come. And he's come to us in Jesus. And this Jesus, he will baptize you. He will fully immerse you. The, the one mightier than John will fully immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And now, some of you may be getting nervous with that language because the sermon so far has just been like some fun biblical theology, a little nerdy, oh, a little bit convicting around the sin stuff. But now, it feels like we're about to finish talking about being baptized in the Spirit. And we are. And I, and I know that some of us have like real baggage here. Like we left communities because of this. It was weird. Um, so let me just be clear. John said it. We have to figure out what to do with it. And so to help us, and this is, a, this is just a great Rule, if, if you're confused about something in the scriptures, see if there's other scriptures that help clarify that. That's a great place to start. So that's precisely what we're gonna do this morning. Turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles. This is Acts chapter one. And I'm gonna read the first eight verses here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've began to, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so this is Luke, who's the author of the two-part series, Luke Acts. And in Luke, which is the gospel according to Luke, he then, he says, I've begun 
to deal with all that Jesus had done and teach. And then he goes on in verse two, until the day when he was taken up. After that, he had even commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, and check this out, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they had asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Lord has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's what we know. Here's what we know from Mark, from the Gospels, from the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus's ministry is empowered by the Spirit, that he teaches in the power of the Spirit, that he heals in the power of the Spirit, that he delivers in the power of the Spirit, that he binds up the broken in the power of the Spirit, that Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit is all over Jesus's life. The story of Jesus, like the scriptures themselves come to us by the power of the spirit. And now we are followers of this Jesus. So what might that mean for us? Well, um, sensing like the angst and potentially the anxiety that's welling up in you, but decades before, uh, Billy Graham has this to say. Billy Graham, by the way, not an extreme Pentecostal, quite conservative. Billy Graham has this to say. Everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They're hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not at all that they expected. And they have often recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we need is what John promised the greater one would bring. We need to be fully immersed, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so is that, is that like true for you? Is it true for you that your most desperate need is to be filled with the Spirit? I'm sure, I like, I told this to Jessica, but I've, um, like this stuff makes me nervous <laughs> um, because you start talking about Holy Spirit stuff and people just leave or it gets real weird. But we wanna be faithful to follow the scriptures where they lead us. And John is saying, okay, yes, yes. Confession and repentance, yes, but more. You need to be, one greater than I is coming to fill you, to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And all along, the hope of God's people is for God to show up, to lead them in with power into this new exodus, to, to come from slavery into freedom in God's presence. And it seems as though he's saying that that, that is a life empowered by the Spirit. 
And isn't it interesting that when Billy, like in, in Billy Graham's little quote here, he's not saying that all those heathens out there, all those non-Christians out there, that, that their greatest need is, is to go and to profess Jesus and then be filled with the Spirit. No, no, no. He, he says that the greatest, the most desperate need of the nation today is that the men and women who profess Jesus, for many of us, that's, that's you and me, that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you see, there's all sorts of debates around like spirit baptism and whether like your evidence of like your allegiance to Jesus needs to be shown in sign gifts. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what John is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he's quoting John in Acts 1. That's not what we're talking about. And the scriptures are clear that if we, are, if we trust Jesus and, and align our lives with him by faith, that God's spirit is in us. That's Romans 8. And that we are sealed in the spirit. That's Ephesians 1. The scriptures are clear. So what is it that Jesus is then talking about in Acts 1? What is it that he's talking about when he quotes John the Baptist? The promise of the Father. And we see this in, in verse 8 of Acts. He says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's about power. It's about us living and loving as Jesus has loved. And, 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 how, like, and how did he do that? Like, how did Jesus live and love the way he lived and loved? Empowered by the Spirit, fully immersed in the Spirit. It is the Spirit who empowered Jesus' ministry. It wasn't Jesus just mustering up the strength of the divine. No, it was the Spirit who was empowering his ministry. And it is the Spirit who will then empower the church that is if we let him. And earlier this week or like last week or something, uh, I, was, I was talking to Jess again about this. Um, that's my wife, by the way. Uh, and I was just sharing with her like how, I, like, I want this, I would so love for this church to be a church where there's this rich like culture of prayer, of like interceding and, and how I would love to see God's spirit move here and that there would be breakthrough and that there really would be healing that takes place. And there would be, this would be a place of, of like safety and restoration where God's love is so like palpable, it's in the air. And it's not just here on Sundays, but it's every day, like in your classroom and in your apartment building and in your neighborhood and on your street, like it would be everywhere that you go. And as I was talking to her about this, I was just reflecting with her on this little sermon I'd listened to and there's this pastor I really trust and, um, and he said, he said have, have you ever noticed that we're often more comfortable being a little tipsy, maybe even uh, drunk than we are being filled with the Spirit? And he heard that and it was like, oh yeah. So I, like, I, it's not hard for me to remember drunk Kyle, like before Jesus in college and, and even after Jesus. Like, it's not hard for me to remember. He, I find him a little endearing, funny until he gets sloppy. Like, I, I know what to do with drunk, tipsy Kyle. I don't know what to do with spirit-filled Kyle. It's like, it's messy. It, generally, for, for me, it's like, I've had like a handful of these experiences where I can't but explain it, but the spirit of God just like, weight upon me. And it's like sobbing, like weeping, like not like pretty tears, like not like snot everywhere. Like it's just, I don't know what to do with that. 
And it scares the crap out of me. But that's like, that's what I want. I want to be not influenced by drink, by, by that spirit. I want to be influenced by the spirit, the one who called forth the stars, who saw nothing become everything, who gives us life and breath and meaning. I want to be filled with that spirit. And what's interesting is, um, is that I'm not alone. Like I'm not the first person. In fact, uh, the apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians, he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And if we were to literally translate that last little part, be filled with the spirit, it would be um, something like this. Be being kept being filled. Be being kept being filled with the spirit. It's almost like we have a leak like the spirit comes and then it's just like this slow trickle of stuff just coming out. Like we leak the spirit. Um, I may be wrong there, but, but it got me thinking. And have you ever noticed that wherever Jesus goes in the scriptures, that the kingdom of God is just like break. It's like heaven is just breaking out of him. There's this moment that we'll get to in a number of months in Mark chapter five, where Jesus is going to heal the daughter of, of a, a synagogue ruler. Jairus by name. And as he's on his way, this woman who has this unceasing flow of blood for 12 years is like hemorrhaging. And, and she comes up in the crowd, like uh, finds her way to Jesus through the crowds. And she reaches out and she touches the hem of his prayer shawl. And in that moment, this is what Mark says. He says, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, Jesus stopped. And he turned around and he said, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? The crowds are pressing in on you. Perceiving in himself that power had gone out. So I, I really do think that the, that the call of the Christian life is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what he did. Jesus will say in, in, in like John 14 to 16, it's like this great moment in, in the gospel according to John that, that we will actually go to do greater things. And people will say, man, does that mean like, uh, like you're gonna do more miraculous stuff than Jesus? Or does it mean that you're gonna, like there's just, Jesus was one, one place at one time and now through the spirit, there's like a bunch of people who have the spirit of Jesus. Um, is it that more or is it that more? Well, there's, we don't know, but at least it's greater. Everybody agrees that greater things will happen. And I, th I think that this is what's ahead of us, Gateway. I, I think this is actually the invitation of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark is to be filled. Yes, let us confess our sins. Let us turn away from that to God and then let us be filled with the spirit. So maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're, you're thinking, uh, like Kyle, I've been following Jesus for quite a long time now. And, um, and it just feels stale. And I think what Mark is saying, and I think what Jesus quoting John in Mark is saying, you need power. Because you cannot, you cannot will yourself to follow Jesus. You can white knock, like you can do morality for a while, but obedience comes with a cost. You need the spirit of God to fill you. You need love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to be empowered by the spirit of God. And so we can, we can do this thing where we talk about renewal. We can even put it in our mission statement, which like we have. 
Um, but unless there's power, our city, our neighbors, and our own hearts will be weary under the weight of labor. The greater one has come and his name is Jesus. And you know what his desire is? His desire is for you to be filled, to have power, to actually live in love like he lived and loved in the world, to be his presence to those who might never know the presence of Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. So you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the one who empowers us. Are you willing to believe that today? This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.